Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello and welcome to episode 4 333. Well, that's very symmetrical, isn't it? Of the Run Run Live podcast. Hello, my friends. Welcome and thank you for taking the time to download this podcast and to listen to it. You didn't have to. There's plenty of content clamoring for your attention and for you to commit an hour of your life to listen to me is a great blessing, a great compliment, and I thank you. This podcast has changed over the years. The current version is the fourth iteration. Some of you folks listen for the running tips of a seasoned marathoner. Others to get some business or life advice from a seasoned, well, guy. <laughs> some may just like the sound and music of my readings. Whatever camp you fall into, I work to create something of value, and that's what my goal is that you can take away one nugget, one thought, one learning, one thing to try. And I know you do your best. You're always trying to do what's right in this world. This is our time, you and I, to talk. You've worked hard. Sit back and let me talk for a while. Listen to some ideas, and I'll give you the best I can with the time I have and the resources at my disposal, okay? All right, so today we have an interview with Tobias Muse. Isn't that a Melodic name, Tobias Muse. Tobias has written a book about 50 races that you just have to run. It's his best of list or bucket list from his years of being an endurance sports journalist. He's a fun guy. We have a great talk. We actually talked for over an hour because he was pumping me about questions uh, about what I do and in my podcast and stuff. And I don't think he could wrap his head around the fact that this is all just a hobby for me. In the first section, we'll talk about some things to consider when running when it's super cold out, which it has been. In section two, I'm going to wax poetically about a certain local intellectual vagabond. And my training, I'm pleased to say, is going great. A little more than a month out from Boston, and I feel pretty strong. My heart is right in the groove. My legs are coming around, and my fitness seems to be good. Coach has transitioned me from base building to race-specific strength and fitness. I just capped off a 50-mile-plus week Sunday morning with a nice 20-miler with some race pace in it. It was uh, two hours and 45 minutes with an hour and a half of marathon pace in the middle. Good run. Good confidence builder. And I did a long step-up run the Tuesday before where I was in the in the seven-minute mile range for most of that, that tempo. And I did a nice set of 10 uh, hill charges on Friday. And my form and my leg strength was really good. So, yeah, feeling strong. Looking forward to Boston. <laughs> I mean, this time last year, I couldn't even race. <laughs> One of the things about me that I'm sure you've noticed is that I have a lot of different interests. Philosophically, I'm okay with this. I call it my portfolio life. And frankly, those times in my life where I've been squeezed into working on one thing, one topic, they make me nervous. They make me sad. Working on, thinking about, and creating different things, well, that makes me happy. And the challenge is that you risk spreading yourself too thin. You never actually get 
anything done. You're peripatetic. That's a great word, peripatetic. Peri, like outside, and pathetic, walk around. So walking around the outside. You eventually get to the point where you have so many irons in the fire that you just sort of sit and shake and don't do anything. And another thing I find is when things get hard, I immediately come up with one or two or three new projects that I want to work on instead of the ones that I haven't finished that are that are getting hard. So uh, it's hard to focus. And this crops up for me when I'm not traveling specifically because when I'm on the road, I'm engaged and I'm working and I don't have time to think about what to do next. It's obvious. When I'm confronted with too much free time, it ironically becomes a problem because I have to decide what to focus on, and you can't focus on everything. To combat this, I have adopted a couple of tactical practices that are different sides of the same theory. The first is derived from the classic Pomodoro technique, and the way I do it is I have my two to three top priority projects for the day or for the week or for wherever, and then a pile of other tasks. And I'll set my timer on my iPhone for 20 minutes and then work nonstop without interruption on one of those projects until the timer goes off. And then I'll switch to the next project or set of tasks or maybe take a break. And this way I'm constantly rotating through productive work and making progress on everything and not getting bored or distracted. The other thing I do is I've identified one or two major enabling projects in each of the portfolio areas. And my rule is no matter how long it takes, no matter how hard it is, I finish that project before I can load another one no matter how cool and sexy it is, into the queue. And this allows me to focus energy and resources and not get discouraged. I give myself permission to fail at these projects, but only when I finish them. So what's an example? I had this great idea, a couple of great, I always have great ideas. I had this one, though, that I was going to create a webinar series for the Boston Marathon this year as a charity thing for my Hoyt Fund. And I had a few other podcasts and books that I had ideas for, but I'm not allowed to work on those until I finish the two projects I'm working on right now, which are automating the Run Run Live podcast production and redoing the Run Run Live website. So there's your nugget for today. It's okay to have a lot going on, but you have to focus on something to get anything of substance done. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Running in the super cold, surviving that polar vortex. So each year in New England, we get a couple of extraordinarily cold winter days. And many choose to stay indoors and either skip their runs or ply their miles on the treadmill. I run and race outdoors through these cold times. I am of the opinion that there is something character building to braving the cold. I am living proof that it won't kill you. It won't cause your digits to freeze or burn your lungs out. I've raced 20 milers at zero degrees Fahrenheit with a stiff breeze. It's not ideal. It's not comfortable, but it's definitely realistic and well within the operating parameters that humans are designed for. Getting out and completing this kind of long run against the elements gives you a certain mental confidence that you can overcome anything. This is part of your training, especially if you are training for the Boston Marathon in New England. You train through January, February, March in the cold, the wind, the snow, the rain. And this strength of training builds the bedrock of your physical and mental toughness, your confidence for Patriots Day. And that being said, there is a point (laughs) where the cold becomes more than cold. And for me, this is typically below 15 degrees Fahrenheit when the temperature drops below 15 and starts getting into the single digits or the negatives. It's a new kind of cold, and things just operate differently. And one of the first things you notice is that commercial-grade plastics cease to be quite so plastic. This means things like headphone cables and running shoe outsoles. They just stiffen up. They lose their flexibility. And items are more likely to crack, to break, and just generally malfunction when you pass that certain line and it gets super cold. If you train with a phone, it too will cease to function below a certain temperature. And unless I keep my phone close to my body, it just shuts down when it gets cold. My Garmin watch, it seems to have a stronger constitution. I've never had any trouble with it. 
But be aware that your electronics and anything with a touchscreen may just stop working at certain temperatures. And batteries tend to die twice as fast. Likewise, any fluid you're carrying with you, they'll freeze. The nipple valves on your plastic bottles or your hydration packs, they're the first to go. They clog with ice and they become dysfunctional. Then the fluid in the containers themselves will turn first to slush, then to ice. And below zero, this will happen within the first 40 minutes. You can postpone the inevitable by using hot water in your bottles, but eventually they will freeze. The smaller the bottle, the faster it'll freeze. And the same is true for any energy gels or bars. <laughs> the only way to combat any of this freezing is to have them inside your clothes, close to your body. When you dress for the ultra-cold weather, you need some special considerations. You want to, above all else, remember to keep your core warm. And this can be done with three to four layers of technical wicking fabric. You'll still sweat in the cold weather, and you need that moisture to move away from your core. The outside layer should be some sort of insulating sweater or jacket that has wind blocking capabilities. It still has to breathe because you don't want the moisture trapped inside, but it has to keep your core warm. Windproof vests are a good option. They protect the core and they still allow some, some airflow. The next thing you have to think about is your head and face. In these bitterly cold days, any skin exposed to the weather may burn from the cold. So you need to cover as much of your face as possible while still being able to breathe. A good tip is to slather some petroleum jelly on your nose, ears, cheeks, lips, anything else that might be exposed. And this thin layer of grease can make the difference between cold burns and comfort. Balaclavas work well to cover the face and neck. Hats with chin straps are good too. I usually go with a large winter ski hat and a scarf tied around my neck and lower face. Sunglasses will protect your eyes and surrounding areas, not only from snow glare, but also from your lashes freezing shut. Your breath contains water vapor. At such low temperatures, it will flash freeze as you exhale. So your balaclava or your scarf will become stiff with ice. And it's uncomfortable, but it won't hurt you. If you have facial hair, you'll grow large chunks of ice in it. And again, it's more of an annoyance than a hazard. Gloves are another special consideration at this temperature. Most of your normal running gloves just won't cut it at these temperatures. And I'll switch to a pair of standard winter gloves that I might use for shoveling snow or, or snow blowing. Typically, your fingers will be okay as long as you keep your core warm and you keep moving. It'll be a challenge to do any fine motor skills with your hands, so forget messing with your phone and just stay warm. For the lower part of your body, usually thick winter tights will do the trick. Now, you might consider running pants as well, but I find that a little too constraining. You might want to consider wearing thicker socks or shoe caps to cut the wind. Maybe opt for shoes with a softer outsole, like trail shoes. Toes are also a great place to liberally apply a layer of petroleum jelly for more insulation. One place you might want to invest is in a good winter jockstrap or undies. Alternatively, you can just double up on your undergarments or wear a pair of bike shorts over your tights. Your private parts will also thank you for a liberal application of petroleum jelly. So regardless of what you end up wearing, you'll still sweat. The sweat will wick to the outside layer and it'll freeze. So you may end up basically being encased in a benign ice shell. And this is perfectly okay. The ice on the outside is another form of insulation. It's a protective sweat shell. And as long as it's not up against your skin, you'll be okay. If you have the courage or perhaps poor decision-making skills to get out on these days, even after all the preparation, it's harder to run. Your body is just working harder on these runs. I don't know the science, but from experience, it feels 20 to 30% harder. Some good news is that you end up burning more calories too. At the end, you'll end up physically exhausted from fighting the cold, but it is a hell of a workout. So it's okay to run in the super cold. You won't die. You won't freeze your lungs. You will get a tough workout in, and you will build some nothing-can-kill-me confidence. I wouldn't recommend any kind of speed work if you can avoid it. 
in this weather, your lungs will be okay at normal long-run effort levels. But if you start breathing super hard, it's going to hurt. Yes, you will get the infamous cold burn lungs that people are always nagging you about. And it won't kill you or permanently harm you, but you might feel like you smoked a pack of unfiltered cigarettes. The cold weather is harder on your legs as well. You'll feel it in your joints when you're done. It's a combination of the surfaces and the shoes being stiffer and the cold itself hindering normal joint function. When you watch the weather, they'll always talk about wind chill factors. And it's true, the wind can make it feel a lot colder, especially on your face, your hands, or any exposed skin. Truly, though, some of that wind chill speak is just fear-mongering. You can find sheltered routes and stay out of the worst of it. One thing they don't talk about is sun warming. Even the weak winter sun can significantly warm up perceived temperature on a cold day, especially if you're wearing darker clothes. So try to get out when the sun is out. As I write this, I realize how nuts and unnecessarily masochistic it all sounds. But there is something inherently worthy in your training when you rise to the tests that Mother Nature throws at you. It makes you stronger. We got out last Sunday morning in the midst of the cold snap. The polar vortex of air from Siberia brought the temperature down to minus 9 when we started. And we toughed it out for two hours, and it was zero when we finished. As runners and endurance athletes, we are in the business of doing things that other people think are impossible, things that are entirely outside the normal frame of reference. We look at these things not as impossibilities, but opportunities to be tested. That's the kind of day where you know you were called to task and you pass the test. You carry that mental strength with you. And now for today's featured interview. Tobias. Chris. Give me the 200 words or less on who you are, what you do, why we're talking. My name is Tobias Muse. I call myself an adventure athlete. That was a, a term to be used for the kind of sports I do. I'm also now an author. I'm a journalist by trade. That's how I make a living. And I give talks. And essentially, I suppose my USP, if ever I was to have one, would be that I like to essentially put my body through pain by tackling the kind of toughest races in the world, whether that be on a bike, on foot, or uh, swimming, kayaking, or whatever it might be. Essentially, I like to race hard. So you've uh, written a book here. I have. It's sort of a coffee table book for adventure racers, for runners in general. Yeah, that the, it's limited to running, purely just to keep it kind of focused, with a few wild cards in there, the odd adventure race, the odd swim run. But essentially, it's stuff that you can do on your feet, and it ranges from one-milers and tower running events uh, right up to your sort of 530-kilometer-plus adventure races, where a key component would be the trail running backslash trekking part. By the way, that's a great job to have, right? You sort of adventure racing journalist. Yes. <laughs> you know, is there a college degree around that? Uh, yeah. you know? I call myself yeah. an adventure sports journalist. I suppose that's the closest I, I can get to kind of giving a title to what I do. But there's no kind of program that you go through. It happens by accident, I think. I think like with you, you have to have not an expertise, but just a passion and, and an ability to tell a story, whether that be with words or on print or actually live in person. You're no slouch as a runner either. I see a number of sub three marathons salted through these races that you have in your book. They're all accidental marathons, I think. I never really started running until I was about, well, properly started running until I was 31. And I'd been in the army previously, so I was fit, you know, general good level of fitness. And I obviously ran in the army and I competed in cross-country events, but it was all internal. It was all within the boundaries of my job as an army officer. And then when I left, I entered, started entering races and I suddenly discovered out of nowhere that I was actually quite quick. I had no idea. And I've never really properly pushed the boundaries of my speed I focused more on endurance, mm. but I, I, you know, I can, yeah, I can run a 16 minute 5k right up to a sub 250 marathon to a probably a seven or eight hour 100k. So it goes quite far in terms of its, its distance and speed, but not, I'm not super quick now. I think that comes, that's important though. People discount that when you go into the ultra distances of being able to actually be a little quick of foot, because if you can save the odd hour here and there over the course of 100K, it turns an eight-hour day into a 14-hour day 
or a 24-hour day. There's a big difference there. Yeah, big difference. And I'm time poor. So essentially, my motto is why spend more time on your feet than you need to? The quicker you get home, the quicker you can put your feet up and have a brew. And uh, so uh, so, that's my motto. Uh, Essentially, don't hang around when you don't need to. Yeah. So like you said, I paged through this book and you have your novelty runs like your Spartan races and that sort of thing. And then you have you know big city marathons and then stage races and trail races and ultra races. And it almost reminded me a little bit of Bart Yasso's book uh, when I interviewed Bart for his um, My Life of Running or something was the name of his book. But it was the same thing. He talked about all the races he's done, like Death Valley and the Naked Run and all that sort of stuff. It's sort of a travelogue of your adventures. Right. It is. It's not meant to be, ironically, but it is. I mean, the fact is, unlike many of the books of this genre, these list books, bucket list books, of which mine is you know, no different in one sense. It gives a collection of races to do. But the major difference is that I've done every single one of them. So right. it's as much a journey in my running history as someone who started off as a complete novice who never done a race 10 years ago to, you know, having kind of reached elite levels and podium places and won a few and, and to the point where I've now done 200 odd races and I absolutely love it. So it is as much a journey as anything else. And it, it shows it's, it's achievable. It's not just a Google researched list of cool races to do before you die. These are actually ones that have naturally come about and I wanted to do and I'm not going to waste my time doing a race that's not worth writing about. And that's a kind of a crucial point, really. It's also from a bit of a, a European viewpoint, I would say yes well i think i think naturally being based in the uk and having access to europe and you know it's a quick flight whereas sadly i haven't done as many races further afield i think about of the 50 in the book i think about 20 are overseas and there are a smattering of ones in south america and north america and south africa and Australasia, but they tend to be in Europe and with a, with a decent number in the UK. And it, what it made me think of is the fact that there's just so many good races and wild, crazy adventure races today that you could get to, right? Loads. I mean, there are, there are almost too many. And if someone asked me the other day, if you had one race left to run, you could only do one more race, what would that be? There are too many to choose from, and they're all good. I think the simplest way to choose races these days are to find ones that are in interesting destinations. I, again, you know, one of my other mottos, apart from don't hang around on your feet too long, is essentially if you're going to put yourself through any degree of pain, and ultimately there is always a, a type 2 pain somewhere in a race, then do it somewhere beautiful. You might as well have a distraction, uh, have something to look at that reminds you of why you're doing this and takes away the potential pain in your body. Yeah, I totally agree because I'm fairly jaded on city marathons now because they all look about the same. I mean, New York and Boston are different, but a city is a city is a city. Totally agree with you. Road marathons are great for the simple purpose of they tend to be your local marathon. Like London, I've done six times. Love it. It's easy to get to. It only takes me half an hour to get to the start. It takes me half an hour to get away from the finish. It's got an amazing atmosphere. It's just easy to do. Whereas to travel a long way to then run in another city, that doesn't make sense to me unless you're going to get something special from it, an atmosphere, which I think races like Boston and New York have and are worth doing. But otherwise, you have to have a holiday reason. You have to be going there because... You've always wanted to visit, I don't know, Malta, and you feel, right, I'm going to go and do the Malta Marathon and combine it with a holiday. And then that that becomes an excuse. Otherwise, just to fly there, spend a lot of money, fly back, it's not for me. So when I was paging through the book, I noticed there's some awesome photography in there. Yes, there is. There's some good photos. So unfortunately, a lot of those have you in them, right? <laughs> no. Running, You should right? have seen it before. My, my publisher cut it down. It was, it was literally like a just a series of pages of me and with various expressions on my face. I asked if they could uh, make it less about me and more about the other people because naturally I had a lot of photos, obviously, from me having approached all the race organizers and they sent me photos of me looking in certain degrees of happiness. I was going to ask that question because this is like what I'm watching those Survivor shows on TV where guys talking to the camera, you're wait a second, somebody's holding the camera yeah yeah. you're not alone in the middle of nowhere (laughs) so i'm gonna say where'd all these photos come from do you have a your journeyman photographer who runs along beside you wouldn't that be great no i'm an adventure journalist so i write earn my coin which is not a hard way to earn it actually by essentially writing about the races i've done so a lot of these races i've written about for magazines and Mm -hmm. newspapers around the globe and and therefore i've often had a photographer with me whose job it has been to take photos. If that isn't the case for many of these races, there's always a photographer on course, and therefore I just approach them and ask if I can use their photos. Yeah, what I've always found is go into something like a, a trail race or an ultra, and you say, 
well, I'm going to take a lot of photos because this is a cool race. Then you get about halfway through and you go, screw that. I just want to finish. Yeah. And there's only so many selfies that you can do before. And, and certainly before you start tripping over your feet. I've battled with the whole photography thing. Some of the big races I've done, like the Marathon de Sabre and the Jungle Ultramarathon and things like that, where you're out for a week. So in theory, you should have plenty of time to take photos. But they never look very good. And you're right. concerned about weight. I don't like to carry right. heavy unnecessary things. If I'm going to do well, I'm competitive and I want to win. So I'm not going to lug around a heavy camera, which obviously will take much better photos than my phone. And so I've kind of not taken as many photos as, as I perhaps like to, which means then you're completely beholden to the, the quality and, uh, and the good nature of the photographer on course, essentially. And a race like the Marathon de Sable, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of photographers wandering around the desert taking snaps while you guys are out there in the sandstorms. <laughs> There are, actually. There's a are there? There were not casual passers-by rolling around the place and going, hey, I'll, I'll take a photo and email it to you. There are a lot of photographers, a lot of journalists go out there in purely as, in a storytelling guise, and they essentially sell, sell their photos to the competitors afterwards for quite a lot of money. There aren't that many photographers out there, but there's not free photography out there, so they take advantage of that, and they're really good. And also, these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, if you're going to do something that's cost you a lot of money that you spent months and months training for, you want a photo from it. And right. you'll be prepared to pay for it. In the great scheme of things, it costs nothing, really, compared to the potentially thousands of pounds that you've paid in entry fees to go and do the race. So, But uh, some of those um, mountain races you've done, where you're running across the spine of a mountain, whether it's the Mont Blanc or the uh, some of those ones in Wales, or any of those mountains are just stunning. Yeah. That looks like you'd stop every once in a while, look around and go, oh, my God. Yeah, I love mountain running. If I had one geographical element that I had to choose as where I want to run, it is in the mountains. I absolutely love it there. And that, you know, that's why I was saying to you earlier that I'm going to move to the Pyrenees in March, purely to have that access. And uh, the thing about running in the mountains is there's two sides to it. There's one, there's the view. It's nice sometimes running in a position where you can see the mountains in front of you rather than necessarily be. But running up a mountain leads you to a view at the top. And that's your reward. The only snag is that, of course, having spent sometimes an hour or two hours climbing a mountain to get to the summit, you don't have time to appreciate the view because you're, one, well, maybe while you're tired, but two, uh, it's windy at the top and cold often, and you just want to get off it. Yeah. And so you've literally had, had seconds up there, and then you run off the mountain again, and then you run back down the other side, trying not to trip over your feet as you stumble down the other side of, of the hill. So that's the only drawback sometimes of racing up and down mountains is that you don't spend enough time appreciating what you've got. Yeah, what I love about those long mountain races, they tend to be in very remote places, and the photos that you get, especially from the book, are sort of from the top or the spine where there's no trees, but a lot of them you're in the forest. Yes. And it's just so peaceful. Yeah. Or you have these epiphanies, and a lot of times you're all alone, right? Especially if you're leading. If you're middle of the pack, there'll often be a lot of people around you. There's always one runner to follow. But if you're at the back or you're the front, you can often be pretty much on your own, and you can forget you're in a race. Yeah, and, that's not, yeah, yeah, you sort of transcend because of yeah. the environment. Yeah, but, it's beautiful. But if you really want to transcend and still keep within the confines of a race, then you've got to have no course markings. The only way to do it is to navigate because then essentially the route you've chosen is up to you. And a race like the one you're describing in Wales, the Dragon's Back race, which is a 200 mile five day race across across the spine of Wales. That is a, a seriously exciting race to do because it's just you, a map, a compass. There are obvious routes that you can take and less obvious routes. And, and it's just that feeling of independence and knowing that you might be the only person to have run along that particular stretch for days or weeks. It's very exciting. Yeah, and it looked pretty rough, too. I mean, a lot of loose rock. Yeah, technical. It's fun. Yeah, very technical. Again, going back to that sort of city marathon thing, the difference between running through a city on the cement or the sidewalks and going out in the middle of nowhere and running up the side of a mountain without a trail is two different universes. I would encourage people to do the mountain running because you can find shorter ones, 10K mountain run or, or something around those Absolutely. that size and get a taste for it. Yeah, it doesn't need to be an ultramarathon. I mean, it just tends to be that way. The thing is, I live in London. I do a lot of running on the road and I don't like running on road. It just so happens to be convenient. And also in the winter months, there are road lights, street lights 
which allow you to run in the evening without the need for a head torch and you can run on pavement. So that's very handy. And of course, if you live in the countryside, you're running on roads and they tend to be more dangerous. So you need to find your sort of trail fix somehow. And that involves, generally speaking, going to a park or a national park. It's not a sort of the kind of urban parks that you have. And that's where you can start to explore the kind of wonderful world of trail running. And there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of small 10k half marathon-esque trail races that are just about being outside and enjoying the moment and it's less about time and I think that's the problem with any road race you look for the flattest thing possible and which are perfect if you're looking to go fast but of course it means that you spend most of that 10k half marathon marathon whatever looking at your stopwatch thinking am I on pace and also pretty close to max yes absolutely you're sitting you're literally redlining as I say you're sitting on your limits and it's just a case of whether you peak too soon or, or too late and it was just great it's an exhilarating feeling uh, the endorphins kick in it's pretty cool but nothing compares to that feeling I feel running with nature because then you've got other things to contend with you are literally fighting nature whether it's the weather or whether it's the nature of the terrain or, or just the demons in your head you've got so much more to think about it's just wonderful yeah it is indeed you have these epiphanies when you're hiking up a mountain's going to force you to walk or to hike absolutely <laughs> there's no running up some of these trails Definitely. but sometimes on the downhills you can just fly yeah. And you get a lot of air, and it's really a lot of fun. So I would recommend that for people. I can't agree more with you. Uh, and interesting, when running off-road, it is the descents that are where you win or lose a race, because essentially then you're fighting technical running, but you're fighting the fear in your head that says, I'm going to fall over and chin myself if I'm not too careful. And that's the thing. And as you get older, you become much more risk-adverse, and you're scared. You slow down to a practical crawl as you tiptoe your way down the mountain, your quads are burning, that everything's happening at once. And it's a, it's a weird feeling once you learn to let go and just move with the mountain as you go down the hill. And it's fun to watch the, the Europeans, amazing, the Spanish and the Italian and the French in particular, are amazing uh, at descending down mountains, technical mountain slopes. And you just watch with open mouth wonder as they just plummet at 100 meters every five seconds they're just plummeting down this mountain like there isn't anything in the way if you go on youtube you can dial up some of the uh, killian journey videos where he's almost downhill skiing yeah right yeah with in his running shoes he's downhill skiing these scree slopes it's just amazing and i've been in races that are out and backs where you've got the leaders passing you on the downhill on a technical descent in a forest yeah and, and they're not just using their legs, they're using their whole body. Yeah. So they're swinging from tree to tree like little monkeys flying down these trails, barely touching the ground. It's amazing. As soon as you suddenly start going, oh, I think this is a bit dangerous now. That's it. You've lost your momentum. You've got to just basically trust in your, somehow your feet find the right spot to run on. They just do it. There's, you can't explain it very easily. You just have to do it. And you practice somewhere without too many technical roots or rocks to run on. And then you slowly build up your confidence until you realize actually your body is this incredible machine that can do superhuman feats. You just have to, to trust it. Exactly. So do you think you're going to get in trouble for skipping some of the famous North American races like Western States or... Death Valley or Leadville or even Boston. I know, and I qualify for Boston a lot. And sadly, I haven't done it yet. I think that's definitely for the 50 more races to run before you die. That's the point with a book like mine. I haven't written the definitive guide to the best races on the planet. These are the best races I've done out of 200 odd races. And if it's not in there, that's because I haven't done it. And it's not because I haven't wanted to, perhaps because I haven't had the, the chance. Uh, I'd love to do Western States. I've, I've applied a couple of times, haven't got a place yet. And, and the same goes for Leadville or any of the big ones like Boston. I would love to go, but I just haven't been able to justify the money to go to Boston to run a road marathon yet. So yeah, so I will go and, uh, and it will happen. And I probably will get in trouble for not having done those things. And if anyone wants to invite me to those marathons, I would be delighted to go and write about them. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's how it goes. But uh, there are only so many days in the year and there are only so many races. And the problem is a race only comes around once a year. And if you miss that, that slot that year, you Got a long time to wait for the next one. Yeah, it's tough, especially as you get older, because you got to train for these races. You can't just do one every week. You can, though. You can. Yeah, there's a bit of a compromise there, though. There is. Yeah, you have to go a tiny bit slower. Otherwise, if you race every race, then you will burn out. And actually, you know, there's an interesting thing. When I finished the book, and I raced a lot. I was racing sometimes twice a weekend, every week, and I loved it. But I finished the book, and I felt it was almost a bit like closing a chapter of my life. I had this kind of, what do I do now? I've done the toughest races in the world. You know, I haven't done every single one, but I've done a lot of really hard ones and kind of written this definitive guide to, to what to do before you die. So I thought, how do I find the next 
thing. And it, it is challenging, I think. You have to pull back a bit to appreciate what you've got, because otherwise it's a bit like serial dating. Yeah. You just yeah. roll through races and you have no real emotional attachment to them. Uh, you, know, you just right. turn up you're like a weekend warrior, just fighting against other people in, in terms of time and position. And then you leave uh, and then you do it again the next weekend. You're just chugging through them. So I think sometimes you have to slow down a bit pick out which ones are really worth fighting for and the other ones are there to enjoy take more photos perhaps yeah so you did very well in most of your races except that wine marathon in france <laughs> took you five hours yeah five hours is the quickest one i have done it twice <laughs> uh, that's my pb at the medoc the marathon du medoc is uh, is an amazing race and if ever there was a chance to slow down and just indulge in your running fantasies, then that is the race to do it. Some fancy dress, there are some hosted in the, in the wine region of the Medoc wine region of France, just near Bordeaux. Instead of having tables of Gatorade or Lucasade or whatever it is that you might find on an aid station, you have bottles of wine, thousands of bottles of wine, and you sample some of the finest wines known to man. It's absolutely amazing. And there's live music everywhere, there's ice cream, there's steak, there's foie gras, there's just <laughs> wonderful. So literally, they call it the marathon le plus long du monde, the longest marathon in the world, and that is because it's about taking your time. It's cut off at six and a half hours, and the idea is to do it in six and a half hours. And that, so the second time, I actually got my wife and I, we got married at the Marathon du Médoc and, uh, and invited our friends to run with us. Um, we, we got married at the end of it. So yeah, so then we really were taking our time. But a lot of our friends had never run a race before, let alone a marathon, uh, yet they were keen drinkers. So they, they took the drinking a bit too seriously and took the running a not seriously enough and therefore they, they the, the whole don't the beginning of a race that whole thing you know where they kind of ran too fast drank too hard and suddenly by kind of mile 10 we're starting to suffer as yeah. they kind of had a hangover midway through and, and battled on to finish with us but uh, what a wonderful race and we're going back to do it again actually this year set up our two-year anniversary but we're going to run it with our child um, so yeah she's going to be in a buggy we'll add another dimension to it I'm sure yeah so you can stretch it out to the full six and a half hours definitely or might have to go a bit faster if if she if it's too hot because obviously you being a responsible parent you shouldn't be running with your child for too long and drinking at the same time so yeah so I think there's a, there's a balance to be maintained there yeah, but Europe, you can just push the pram over to the side and leave it. Nobody will touch it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our child might, might object to that, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just looking after that uh, young kid there. We'll be we'll back in a couple of hours. We'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back. Um, okay. But it's, oh, it's a fabulous race. And there are lots like that in France of, of sort of gastro marathons that, uh, <laughs> that just leave salivates in the mouth. And, uh, and you have to remind yourself when you get to the end that you're not meant to drive anywhere because, of course, you've had a few drinks. But you never think about that after a marathon, do you? I can't wrap my head around that. I'd have to train a lot just to be able to do that. Yeah. To be able to run and drink alcohol at the same time. Honestly, you know that, that you have, how all the, the advice, and I've written it myself, all that advice that you hear, never try anything new on race day, don't drink alcohol the night before. Some people quit booze for like months on end before a big race. The, the, make sure you test out all your kit and uh, all this good stuff. In that race, you've never worn your fancy dress. You know, in our cases, it's been I've been a Spartan warrior and, a, and I've been an African warrior as well. And uh, I've never ridden, you know, I've never run in those outfits. I'm not going to run around London in them. I'll be ridiculed. Uh, and equally, nor have I tried, <laughs> I, I've never tried those particular wines before, nor have I tried to drink 20 glasses of wine in a, in a marathon. And all the other things that you, uh, you're you not meant to do, you're definitely not meant to eat steak on a marathon. And an awful Full garage, jeez. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And sh- okay. you think of a worse food to eat while running. Yes, definitely not. Not the, the faintest stomach. It's strangely wonderful, but by the end, you know, the obvious hitting the wall point, which is a metaphorical thing, but you do, you suddenly start going, oh, actually, I'm quite looking forward to this finishing now because it's still a marathon, it's still a long way to run and, uh, yeah. and you're only making your life more difficult by, again, spending more time on your feet and drinking. So that initial rejuvenation of, oh yeah, cool, let's take loads of photos and celebrate and have a glass at every single one. By, by mile 16, mile 18, mile 20, you're starting to think, actually, I'm just going <laughs> to just try to get to the I, end now. It's, uh, I'd really like to take a nap is what you're thinking. Yeah, and people do they have a little siestas and they sit out and uh, it's it's wonderful there is a slightly slower version that you can do in, in may which is on a bicycle and it's a bit more relaxed and in fact the medoc marathon is is a real race and it's not just designed to be slow but that the owners of the chateau the vineyards that you pass through they put together teams of teams of 10 and it's a big competition to see who's the fastest vineyard and they will recruit very fast runners i mean people running good 230 marathons and below will be out there pointy end of the course uh, and they won't be drinking well I don't think so anyway and they probably won't be in fancy dress 
Um, so, so it is a real race at the front end of the pack. But to put it in perspective, out of the 8,000 people that were doing the race in the first year that we ran it, we came about 1,000th in five hours. Wow. That puts, there's a lot of people, you know, an hour and a half after us uh, enjoying the moment. Wow. Yeah, sounds like something. All right. So I'm going to move you towards the exit here. What's the title of the book? When's it coming out? Where can people find it? Or where will they be able to find it? The book is called 50 Races to Run Before You Die. Uh, it's being published by Orem Press. Uh, and it comes out on the 3rd of March. It's available on Amazon.com in the States and Amazon.co.uk in the UK. And uh, Book Depository, it's with Waterstones. And it's published pretty much in any online store you can think of. Uh, so, yeah, so you just need to Google 50 races to run before you die and you'll find it very quickly. All right, great. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to speak. Thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Cape Cod, in the footsteps of Thoreau. I am browsing through a copy of Henry David Thoreau's Cape Cod that I received as a gift. He wrote consistently through his life. He read consistently, too. He read in many languages and had a broad scholar's grasp of the available literature of antiquity. I have read Walden to a point. I find Walden so thick with philosophy and deep thought that it is hard to read as a continuous narrative. It's not so much about Thoreau's time at the pond as it is about Thoreau's inspection of the universe and all its philosophy. The deep meanderings of Walden are not the only writings of Thoreau. He also liked to explore, to go on many adventures of his own countryside. When he was traveling, he kept a journal, and these journals were made into small travelogues, and Cape Cod is one of them, and I think it was his first book. Most of Thoreau's work is now in the public domain. If you make your way over to LibriVox.org, you can find a two-page list of his poetry, his works on civil disobedience that were read by Gandhi, and even Walden, read into audio, that you can download for free. Free! The words and thoughts of one of the most interesting minds you can get for free. In this age where we gleefully glorify the anti-intellectual, this stuff could be the cure. Another work I have read is A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, where he gets into a small boat with his brother in 1839 and floats down the Concord River to the Merrimack and out towards the sea. I find these local travelogues interesting because I can drive five miles from my house and execute the same trips. His descriptions of the riverbank cities in the book are familiar to me, but 200 years removed. There's a familiarity in his descriptions that could describe any number of summer days of my own. And so it is with Cape Cod. To quote in his introduction, Cape Cod is the bared and bended arm of Massachusetts. The shoulder is at Buzzards Bay. The elbow or crazy bone at Cape Malbar the wrist at Truro, and the sandy fist at Provincetown, behind which the state stands on her guard with her back to the green mountains and her feet planted on the floor of the ocean like an athlete protecting her bay, boxing with northeast storms and ever and anon heaving up her Atlantic adversary from the lap of earth, ready to thrust forward her other fist which keeps guard the while upon her breast at Cape Ann. He is a scholar and a student at heart and in practice. His writings and descriptions feel almost scientific in their detailed exactness. Behind the travel narrative are theories and criticisms and philosophies as they hit him, almost as an outgrowth of the act of writing. He will be describing the erosion of a seashore and mid-paragraph quote the Iliad in Latin or some archaic Champlain expedition note in Old French. It's a curious blend of matter-of-fact realism and philosopher meandering. With his scholar's mind so full of knowledge, it necessarily leaks out the sides into his descriptions. This combination of intellectual curiosity, a poet's pen, and a local familiarity draws me to his work. In Cape Cod, he travels the length of the Cape, taking in the landscape and the people and describing it all like it was some curious foreign land. Now, Cape Cod is only 20 miles from Boston. But in those days of limited conveyance alternatives, it might have been a foreign land. Even today, the Cape stands apart from the rest of the state. 
in climate and culture. He talks about the changing nature of the land and the sea on the Cape, how sandbars will appear, disappear, and move about with the storms. He describes the growing beaches of Monomoy and Chatham. He talks about the cliffs and dunes of Truro falling into the covetous sea. He recounts the local stories of shipwrecks being buried but then reappearing many years later. I recognize these places. Every year in the summer, I try to do a long run on the point of the Cape's elbow in Chatham by the Coast Guard Light across from Monomoy, and I see it too, the beaches reconfigured each winter by the storms. I get the impression that in the current era, the beach is mostly taken away. I see ocean breaches now where once there was miles of unbroken sand in bars. At the lighthouse, the tourists crowd about But once I get out about a mile or so, I'm all alone except for a few solitary walkers. And eventually I'll come to a place where there are no more people and it is just my unbroken footprints in the wet sand. At that point, I become the solitary traveler, the poet and the philosopher. It could be 1849. The shells and pebbles would be the same. The earth abides. I suppose that's the point. The more things change, the more they stay familiar. Even with familiar things, change is always constant. The Cape Cod of the 1840s is still there as much as it was described by Thoreau. There are fewer lighthouse keepers and more affluent people sipping coffee. In the winter, the Cape is still quite a sharp place that tests the locals. And the rivers of Concord still flow into the Merrimack and onto the sea. We can't hope to stop that change. But we can slow down to observe and paint pictures and dream of philosophy. That we can do. When was the last time you went for a long walk in the woods or on the beach and lost yourself in the times crash of the Atlantic waves? When was the last time you took 20 minutes to crack open a work of philosophy or poetry or any ancient narrative? Push your boat off from the shore, cast off the lines, and find your adventure. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, reset your 20-minute timer because the task of listening to the Run, Run, Live podcast is done. Check the box next to episode 4-333. Like I said in the intro, I'm trying to offload a bunch of podcast tasks to save time. I really love the global internet economy. I have my guy in India who I'm training to be my production assistant. I have my guy in Moscow that I'm trying to train to do the interview edits. And if I can pull it all off, all I'll have to do is create and record the content, and the rest will get done automagically. That's the theory anyhow. If I can offload that stuff, I can focus on creating content. I'm also going to try and redo my website and uh, hopefully find a way to pay for all this and still get you the content without having to do any ads because I hate ads. I'm full-on training for Boston right now and also getting into the the short strokes on setting up the Groton Road Race, the 25th anniversary of the race, April 24th. Come up and join us. It's going to be special. I'd like to thank all my friends who have contributed to my team Hoyt Fund for Boston. I can still use your help. If you can, I would appreciate it. I'm frankly quite surprised that no one has come forward yet to run the Grand Canyon with me on Thursday, May 19th. Maybe I wasn't specific enough. It's not hard. My plan is to sleep somewhere around Sedona, then drive up early in the morning to the South Rim and run down the Bright Angel Trail to the Phantom Ranch and then back up. Worst case, it'll take 8 to 10 hours, and I'm in no hurry. So think about it. Shoot me an email. We'll have some fun. These are some interesting times that we live in. The promise of freedom and longevity for large portions of the world, the expansion of science into unknown realms, the understanding of history and archaeology and the universe. We live in amazing times. I'm very grateful to live in these times. And there's no need for any of us to pull others down. It does not increase our prosperity to persecute others. There's no easy button where all the hard problems go away and the world becomes some neat reality TV show for you to change the channel on. The world we live in is amazing, but it is chaos. There are no easy answers. Everything is in shades of gray. And that makes people crazy. That makes people uncomfortable. 
So when the charlatans come with their easy answers, it's too easy. We don't realize what we are sacrificing. There are no easy answers. When you side with the anti-intellectual herd, you give up more than you realize. You give up your ability to think for yourself. You abdicate that. You abdicate your ability to think about hard problems with many different facets to them. You give up your freedom. Don't make the easy choice to run with the herd and follow the Pied Pipers. Make the choice to think for yourself. And I know it's hard, but you can do it. We all can do it. So do the right thing, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. Despite the striking fact that most of the scientists that the world has ever known are alive and working today, despite the fact that this nation's own scientific manpower is doubling every 12 years, despite that, the vast stretches of the unknown and the unanswered and the unfinished still far outstrip our collective comprehensions. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. One we are unwilling to postpone. And one we intend to win.